Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we have a lot to get into, including the Orioles' defeat at the hands of the Texas Rangers in the American League Division Series. We're going to look back at that and look ahead a little bit to next year and hopefully what's a bright future in Birdland. We're also going to talk about the departure of Brad Selick to the Washington Nationals as the Orioles lose a major contributor within their front office. And we're going to turn our attention to the Arizona Fall League. Now that the Orioles' playoff run is over, we'll check in and see how some of their prospects are doing out in Arizona. But first, uh, we actually have a new member to welcome to our Patreon community. And with that, I'll turn it over to Bob. Yeah, we got our first uh, off-season new member, Patreon. Could be an old member coming back. We're not quite sure. We'll figure that out later. But TC, welcome to AA. And we also had three free subscribers join up, which uh, Patreon has made some changes lately. And one of those is that you're able to sign up for for free to any Patreon. You might not get any benefits, but you know, occasionally we might toss something out there for everybody and, and you can always upgrade at a later point if you feel like it. So welcome guys. And yeah, let's get into off season mode. Cause yeah, the season is officially dead. Yeah. And it ended last week when the Orioles were defeated seven to one in game three, of the American league division series by the Texas Rangers. The Orioles went down to Arlington down two Oh in the series. Dean Kramer got to start, and the Rangers got to Kramer early. And while the Orioles, you know, continue to play hard until the end, it's just unfortunately was not in the cards for them. They were swept out of the American League Division Series and what was a magical 2023 season that saw them win 101 games and the American League East comes to an end. That is now almost a week old, so we're not going to sit here tonight and rehash every single painstaking detail. And in fact, we're now so far removed from it that the Rangers are up 2-0 in the American League Championship Series against the Houston Astros. But, Nick, I'll start with you here. Um, what was your reaction to the Orioles' loss? Uh, I mean, I guess mine was a little different than some people I saw on social media. Um, yeah, I kind of, once that game was over, to be honest, I kind of just changed the channel. I grabbed another beer and uh, enjoyed some uh, non-baseball viewing, and I went to bed. Um but really only because like I just feel, and we'll talk more about this, I think, later on when we talk about some other topics, but like I just am content in like how this season played out, honestly. I did not imagine this team winning 101 games, did not imagine this team even coming close to winning the division. Of course, I expected progression, right? But seeing what they achieved, uh, we saw a lot of bright spots from some young players, guys who are going to be around for hopefully a long time, became major contributors, Cal Bradish. Call him an ace if you want. Uh, I know everybody's definition kind of varies, term ace, but uh, regardless, he's going to be in this rotation uh, at the top or near the top of this rotation for a long time. That was great to see. Gunnar Henderson had a fantastic playoff series there. Uh, should be rookie of the year. So I, I just kind of looked back and said, you know what, that loss, it's not the way we wanted to go out, of course, but I, I'm still feeling super optimistic looking ahead to the future with this organization. And even though they got swept to the Rangers, you mentioned the Rangers up 2-0 already. They are a powerhouse. This lineup is not stopping anytime soon. Evaldi pitched another gym today, um, other than I think oh, um, you know, 
big boy Samuel Basayo over there. Jordan Alvarez getting a couple of monster home runs today. But, you know, I, I'm confident uh, in this this organization, the direction they're going. So I wasn't too distraught. Uh, disappointed, yeah, but I think brighter days are ahead in Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, kind of is looking like we're just running to the team of destiny this year um, in the first round. Unfortunately, Rangers are a buzzsaw. They swept the Rays. They swept us. They're up 2 nothing on the Astros. I think they're like a game behind the 2014 Kansas City Royals for most consecutive playoff games won. Um, I, I believe I saw that today. But, yeah, I, I kind of started processing after the Grand Slam in the third inning of Game 2, which I was attending. Obviously, you know – process that we came on here after that game uh the day after and we made a case for how the series wasn't over but then very quickly tuesday night it was six to nothing and i kind of just like depressingly watched the rest of the game just trying to soak in the last at bats of these guys for this year and and yeah there was a lot of deep exhales and my wife going what is wrong with you that night because she just doesn't understand sports but i was like just give me tonight i'll be fine and and that was the case i i slept it slept it off and just like nick uh ever since i've all i've been doing is thinking about how fortunate we are that the orioles are in the position they're in nothing but optimism moving forward look like he said we won the division we won over 100 games and this will probably be the the worst team talent wise that the orioles see for the rest of the decade at least so you know, nothing but positive things, but it, it no matter what, it, it's always going to hurt to get bounced out of the playoffs, especially swept when you had such a good season. But, you know, it is what it is. And, and we have so much, we could literally do nothing this offseason, which hopefully it's not the case, but we could do nothing and still go in, I feel like, as one of the top two or three favorites to win the, the East again next year. So that's always a good thing. Yeah, it was somewhere in the mid-innings of Tuesday's game where I muted, actually had had the television muted for pretty much the whole game. And I turned on Paul Simon's seven psalms and just soaked that in while watching the Orioles lose. And I thought, you know what? It's been a great year. Um, this is a disappointing end. It's not the ending I expected. I honestly thought the Orioles were going to win that series. I predicted at the onset. But you're both right. The Rangers right now have all of the momentum on their side. They knocked out the two best teams in the American League to even get the American League Championship Series. And now they've got a chance to knock off the team that is your reigning World Series champions in the Houston Astros. So the Rangers clearly have things going for them. I think this is kind of like losing to the Royals in 2014, although they came up just short of the World Series, where it's like, all right, this team is just locked in right now. It's going to take a lot to stop them. The Rangers feel that way. And you know what? Even if the Astros win four straight, and win the ALCS. I'm still going to feel like the Orioles lost to a good competitive baseball team. And while it didn't go the way I was hoping, still nothing to be ashamed of. Not at all. And, you know, it, it's it's so funny. Baseball, 162 games to figure out who the best teams are and line them up in order. And then you lose three games and you're up. So, you know, that's just postseason baseball is just a completely different sport almost than regular season baseball almost at this point. And, and I'm okay with that. You know, it's entertaining. It, it has its pluses and minuses, but it, you just can't forget the accomplishments that, that you made in the regular season just because you got bounced out. Obviously, the goal is to win the World Series. It's hard to do. And yeah, hold your, hold your head up high. We have a banner, AL East Champs um, 2023. Not the banner we wanted, but we can get that next year. And I, you look at like the seeding of the playoffs, and you say, "All right, you, know, you Orioles number one seed, Rangers a wild card team," and you know, lots of discussion, obviously, still going on about you know the playoff format and everything. And I think that's kind of like whatever. Rangers still won ninety games in a super competitive AL West division uh, with Seattle and Houston there. Um, you know, obviously, Oakland didn't provide much uh, in terms of blocking the way for the other teams in that division, but. Still, this is just two really good teams. And unfortunately, like for Texas, I think the, the big difference there was just it came down to pitching. And you know, that's something that we'll talk about all offseason. I know <laughs> pitching, pitching, and more pitching. But, you know, unfortunately, the Orioles pitchers, other than a select few, just didn't show up in this series while Texas's pitchers, they've been showing up and they showed up in the wild card. They showed up against the Orioles and they're showing up again against Houston. So, Definitely not a fluke series. Um, I think just the, the better team won here in this in this scenario. And maybe you think the Orioles have a better team, and, and that may be true, and I'd agree with you. But, you know, the Rangers are, are 
just as good. And they just clicked at the right time, unfortunately. So, And Bradish, you got to be happy with how he performed in game one. I mean, Grayson, it's his first, he's a rookie. It's his first playoff game. He just didn't have the command that he needed. And it was a tight zone that night. So, and then Kramer, obviously dealing with a lot of off the field stuff. Couldn't really uh, blame him for having a poor outing either. You can maybe second guess, oh, should have started Gibson, but no. I mean, yeah, Texas is a good team, and like you said, they were they were the better team the last week, the week that we played them. So is what it is. So you both just kind of touched on this, and I do want to bring it up because it has been a big topic of debate, not just because of the Orioles, but also because of the Braves and Dodgers getting bounced in the first round of the playoffs. The Dodgers, like the Orioles, were swept. The Braves lost in four to the Phillies, and it's prompted a, a – broad discussion about the current playoff format. Is it favoring wildcard teams? Is there any incentive to win the division anymore? Is there any incentive for the things that we've always thought as baseball fans matter? Home field advantage, winning the division, winning 100 plus games. If you have a situation like Arizona who wins 84 games in the regular season, being in the NLCS against another wildcard team. I'm curious to get to your thoughts about that because you could really pick it apart and say, well, this is what competitive balance is supposed to look like. Or you could say we're not seeing the best teams right now. This is a sentence I never wanted to utter in my life, but uh, I agree with Rob Manfred. And, uh, you know, it's short sample size. It's been in place for two years. Yeah, a lot of the top seeds have gotten bounced. But, you know, I think Texas had five days off from the end of the ALDS till the first game in the ALCS or, or something like that. And they are doing fine. I don't think you can blame that. I still think getting that first round by is more important and what you want. I still think the division is going to matter, but when you expand the playoffs, that's just going to dilute the field no matter what. I mean, this is just what happens with expanded playoffs and the more they do it, because we know they're going to probably expand to 32 teams and probably eight playoff teams per, per league. Eventually. Um, I feel like you're just going to see more potential upsets in the making. So Parity, you know, in the NFL, they they preach parity and, and how every team has a chance any given Sunday. Baseball, if that's what they're aiming for in the postseason, that's what they're getting. Yeah, I still think I still think like I said last week, that maybe if like game one, if you're looking at back at the Orioles Rangers series, maybe game one, right? This is a young team, an inexperienced team, different energy in Camden Yard. So yeah, they're at home, but still different energy, different pressure with those playoffs. They've had some time off. You had the simulated games, right? You, we saw the videos. You could go to the stadium and watch too. Grayson throw into these guys, Kramer, Bradish, all of them throw into these guys. You can try to simulate that, but you can't simulate the pressure that these guys felt in that first game. You can't simulate. I mean, these guys know everything about Grayson and Bradish. They know their pitch shapes. They know the speed. They know where they like to throw certain pitches. They know everything about their own guys. So you can't simulate throwing Texas's staff out there against them. And I just feel like baseball is, is this relies so much on that timing and rhythm and staying consistent like that. Like basketball, you get some time off, you can rest your legs while still like working on your jump shot, working on your form. That's all up to you to keep up that rhythm. When you get back in the game, get your legs underneath you, you're back like, like nothing happened. Football, you know, maybe you see teams come out flat in like what the first quarter, first half, uh, they get that first round by, and then they, they have half time, they can go in, adjust get used to the speed of the game, get their timing back again, those first couple of drives, and then they're good to go. I think with baseball here, we saw it with this Orioles team, maybe that first game, you could say it had an impact on the bats, but the bats came alive in that second game and game three to a couple like Gunner and Westberg and some guys and Santander, they, they were decent game three, but I think the bats did come around. So maybe that first game, you can use it as an excuse, but like the whole series, I mean, you're just seeing other than the Diamondbacks, you're just seeing the better teams win. Like Houston was better than the Twins. Uh, you could argue Texas was had a better team, at least offensively, than the Orioles. The Phillies, like, yeah, the Braves are really good, but that Phillies team, man, they are built for this postseason. Uh, maybe some of the pitchers underperformed a little bit, but this team was rocking to close out the year. They were playing extremely well. The Diamondbacks, I was thinking about maybe they were just – Maybe the Diamondbacks, it looks like they're losing 2-0 right now in the first inning. So we'll see how that series goes against Philly. I don't have much hope, but uh, they did take down the Dodgers, so you never know. But I just feel like with the Diamondbacks, it was 
what they've done so far is what we were hoping the Orioles would do. Maybe they have some of that youthful ignorance on their side where they just say, we got nothing to lose. We're not just happy to be here, but we're here. So we're going to make some noise uh, and we're going to shoot for the moon. And if it means some wins, we get some wins, which they took down the Brewers and they took down the Dodgers. Um, We'll see how far it takes them, but maybe it was just uh, everything clicked right for them. And unfortunately they didn't click right for us, but they were kind of relying on some of that, uh, some of that same little luck that we were. Yeah. And like Nick said, I mean, the first game would probably be the game that would be most affected by the rest. And that was our only competitive game basically in the three that we played. So don't know how much you can blame that. Yeah. Arizona, just a young team that probably got better as the year went on and did good and, and again, just it's baseball. If you're hot, anyone can beat anyone. The A's beat, or the A's swept some good team this year. I remember, can't remember which team it was off the top of my head, but it, it happens. You know, the, the differences in quality is measured best over a long stretch of games. That's why 162 games, I do feel confident that the records are significant. But when you narrow it down to a three to five game stretch, not as much. Yeah. And to give the Diamondbacks credit, um, there's a lot of talent on that team. I do think that they were better than 84 and 78. And in fact, they were good in the first half. I think it was our recall came out sluggish after the all-star break and then picked things up down the stretch to get into the playoffs. There's a lot of young talent there. They're going to be around for a while, but Dodgers just didn't show up in that series. I mean, when you have a guy who's a first ballot hall of famer go out and lay an egg, like Clayton Kershaw did in the first game, did Mookie Betts even get a hit in the series? It's probably one of your top two MVP vote getters this year. I, I don't think he even got a hit in the series. Yeah, and I know Ronald Acuna was like one for a lot in the Philly series too. And the Dodgers, yeah, they had um, Clayton Kershaw come out and get shelled. And then in games two and three, the almighty Dodgers are sending out Emmett Sheehan and Bobby Miller, two <laughs> rookies who can throw hard and not much else. It's kind of weird, but... Yeah, I think, you know, these teams have to learn the new format as well. That You have to learn how to stay fresh on your off days, and you need to learn how to set up your pitching. Um, you know, I think it's just a learning experience for everybody. Go back real quick to the Orioles specifically, and we have a lot of offseason ahead of us. And as our longtime listeners know, we don't take any breaks in the offseason. We're still recording regularly, so we're going to have plenty of time to get into things like free agency, trades, arbitration eligibility, whether or not players are going to be tendered contracts, all of that stuff. But if there's one question that comes to your minds um, as the Orioles approach the offseason, what is it? Mm, I mean, my biggest question coming into this offseason is uh, how many pitchers are we going to bring in? Like, <laughs> I mean, I guess I, I think this whole offseason better be about pitching, to be completely honest. Like, I think this lineup is good. It's solid. You can make a few minor moves here and there. Uh, you've got some big-time prospects coming up. You've got some veterans who are settling in pretty well. You know, I, I'm not too concerned about the lineup, but I, I need some pitching on this team. Um, and we could talk about a lot of these guys, but you know, we saw a lot of good. I don't think there's any really any more questions about Bradish. We could talk about Dean Kramer, not tonight, but you know, about, you know, what his future role is. We could talk certainly about DL Hall and what his future role is going to be. Uh, but, you know, I think I was listening to um, rates and barrels. I don't think they come out with an episode for a while, but uh, I was listening to their episode today and they were talking about, you know, pitching staffs and, you know, it's nice to rely on the rookies, but they're like, you're coming into the season. You need five guys. Right? You can count your rookies as like six, seven and eight because you need that depth, but you need tough five high quality arms uh, to get through a postseason, which the Orioles didn't have uh, to be honest. So hopefully that's, that's addressed and whatever we can get from contributions from guys like DL hall and maybe a Cade Povich chase McDermott uh, will be uh, nice bonuses, but got to address that rotation. Yeah. For me, it's, you know, we know Michael Elias and company can build a team from the scraps of a house that's been blown over by a tornado into a mansion, but can they maintain it and go, you know, I want to see what it's like. And I I have no doubt that they're capable and it's just a matter of how much money they're going to be able to spend. But what is Michael Elias and this front office's vision for maintaining status quo as division winners winning hundred games? How are they going to try to build on that? Are they going to continue to try to, get guys that are, you know, 
a little bit undervalued and then thinking they can get more out of them, like the Ryan O'Hearns and and a bunch of the waiver claims, bullpen pieces that we've seen over the past few years? Or are they going to go for bigger names and some bigger upside that's I want to see if they can walk and chew gum at the same time where, you know, buy and sell at the same time, you know, maybe sell some of the AAA prospects for an ace or a top of the rotation pitcher, a good bullpen piece. And maybe you can sell a Ramon Urias for a couple lower level prospects to kind of balance out the system a little bit. Can are they going to want a veteran bat this year? Obviously, you know, they went from Rugnet Odor to Adam Frazier. You know, there's incremental increases like Jordan Lyles to the Kyle Gibson. Is that trend going to continue just gradually uh, the talent level of that guy going up as well? Are they going to want a right-handed, you know, bat with power to kind of balance the lineup a little bit? A lot of questions, a lot of different ways it could go. But um, I'm very interested to see what they do. And honestly, like I said, they don't have to do much, and we're going to be good next year no matter what. But we want to be great. So let's see what they do. The one thing that I think I've been thinking about the most or the one area of the roster that I've been thinking about the most since the season ended has been the bullpen. Um, In his end-of-season press conference, Michael Elias, as usual, didn't tip his hand about any moves the Orioles might make this offseason, and he's under no obligation to do so. But he did acknowledge during that press conference that the hole left by Felix Bautista's injury was truly never exposed um, over the final weeks of the regular season. So I think he knows that you can't come back with the same bullpen next year and expect to not have some sort of gap. What I'm wondering, though, is are they going to go out and try to trade for or sign an established closer? Are they going to try to basically build the bullpen the way that they have in the past, which is through small moves, waiver claims, cast considerations, deals, and hope that someone in the current mix can fill that closer's role? Or is it going to be a combination of those two things? But I definitely expect the bullpen is going to be a priority this offseason. And I'm just very curious to see how they do it. And I'm just going to throw this out now. They're not signing Josh Hader. Don't even start that discussion. They're not doing it. I mean, no, he's got I, a, he's got a pretty long list of demands for when he enters a game. Apparently, so uh, I'll pass on Josh Hader. I don't care how good you are. Yeah, I, I don't expect any splashy, big money contracts, especially for a relief pitcher when they're in their thirties, older players. No, I think I think it's going to be murder by numbers, where it's like we're bringing in a bunch of guys who th- we think have big upside. Maybe Juanis and Charles is Felix Bautista next year, you know. Keegan Gillies, these guys are going to be options next year. But also, I I would not be surprised if there's another Michael Givens-esque signing or two, and then you're just hoping, obviously, it goes way better than that. Maybe Dylan Tate comes back healthy next year. I don't think there's going to be, if they get a, like, bigger name relief pitcher, bigger upside, like, a guy who has already proven to be able to do the job. I think it will be through trade more than a free agent signing kind of feel the same with starting pitcher, but yeah, I think you need to bring in at least a handful of potential relievers that could pitch at the end of ball games, or, you know, they, they can make a decision on DL hall. Are they going to let it give him a chance to fight for a rotation spot in spring? Or are they going to say, Hey, you did great out of the bullpen. You want a chance at being a closer. Let's work on it this off season. And, you know, maybe he comes into spring training and he can routinely hit triple digits as well uh, as Felix Bautista did, but from the left side. Um, yeah. Again, there's a lot of ways they can go about it. I think they're not going to go about it the obvious way where it's okay. We're signing Aaron Nola. We're signing Josh Hader. No, get that out of your head. Now it's probably not going to happen. I, it would be, it'll be interesting to see, how often the Orioles pop up in rumors this year because they do keep everything so close to the vest. I, I remember last last offseason, if the Orioles were named as a rumored suitor for a guy, I'm like, oh, Orioles are out on him now. That's old old information that they are willing to let out there. So, yeah, going to be another fun offseason. The bullpen is interesting, and I've always had this thought that spending big, like big financial contracts on bullpen arms – is a waste. I, I just never understood why teams would do that because 
A, look at what the Orioles have been able to find off the scrap heap, the waiver wire from other teams, but just the fact they're so volatile. You just don't know. It's It scares me to devote a large portion of money to the bullpen. I am opened up after this year uh, to spending a little bit more, maybe not relying solely on just these waiver claim gems that they have found some gems, you know, um, but at the same time, I am open up to spending up a little bit uh, for some bullpen arms, especially because you mentioned Felix Batista out next year. I I forgot Dylan Tate was still on the team, to be honest, uh, until you mentioned his name. Um, hopefully Dylan Tate comes back next year. That would fill a void, a, a big void, Hope if he's pitching as well as he was before he went down with injury. But you mentioned D.L. Hall and Tyler Wells also. Like If those guys find their way back into the rotation – ideally I'd love to keep Hall in the bullpen. Um, I don't know if that's a minority opinion or not, but I don't think the, or- I think the organization is going to give him every opportunity. They've told us that numerous times. I think that's true that they're going to give him every opportunity uh, to start out of the rotation next year. That opens up another void. Um, you know, so it's the bullpen. It is going to be interesting to see how they attack building this bullpen next year. Cause there's definitely a lot of work to do there. And one more point is, you know, you might not see them address the bullpen the way you want them to in the offseason, but they could have in their head, look, we're going to let it, it worked out well in the regular season last year. We can do that in the first half. And then when the trade deadline arrives, we're going to get the best reliever out there and, you know, just add him to the back of an already hopefully good bullpen. So that's, you know, the trade deadline is, is a weapon that hopefully they use a lot better this year than they did uh, or this coming year than they did this year. So Vivek here with a question. Is there anything Michael Elias can learn from the buy trades that he made uh, referring to Centauro, Fujinami and Zach Flaherty? You got to spend more than guys who you're about to lose on the rule five draft. <laughs> if you want to acquire legit talent, uh, I don't know. I, I think, look, I had no issues with those trades uh, on their own, but yeah, it, as far as like, we're going to use those two guys to help kind of push us to the next level. Yeah. Um, but again, like I didn't I didn't see any way the Orioles were gonna spin bigger at this past deadline. Not right now. Hopefully, like Bob said, next year it's a different story. But yeah, this past year I, I just didn't see them spinning any bigger. So being able to pawn off some guys who they were gonna lose in the rule five draft, you did have to spend a guy like um Zach Showalter. That one did hurt to lose a little bit, but you did have to part with a little bit of prospect talent, but mostly you're getting rid of, you know, Easton Lucas for Fujinami. Like that's, that's a good deal. Um, hopefully we get to see more higher profile trades so we can definitely learn a little bit more this off season and at next year's deadline. I think we learned that when Elias is getting a deal and he thinks he's winning a trade, he's still doing so because you got Shintaro Fujinami for Easton Lucas. And I think you make that trade 100 out of 100 times. You know, Fuji didn't make the, the ALDS roster, but, you know, he showed flashes that that is a risk that was you had to be willing to take. And I, I think it worked out for the most part. Could have worked out better. Definitely could have worked out worse as well. I, like I said before, I'm glad they made a trade for a starting pitcher, even though Flaherty didn't work out exactly as planned. But, you know, he did allow the team to go to a six-man rotation for a while. And trade deadline, it's like Russian roulette with the starting pitchers. I think one out of six is going to work out in any way. And unfortunately, we did not. That's a weird uh, metaphor, but we did not find the bullet in that mix there. Um Yes, you could maybe you could have done more, but we also don't know what was offered, what was declined, you know, what it would have taken to get a better what would have the Orioles had to give it up for Jordan Montgomery instead of Jack Flaherty? Would it have been Colton Kowser had to go? Because, you know, I know that the where did they get him from? The Cardinals got uh Sagis, Saggy, I don't know how to say the guy's name. S-A-G-G-E-S-E. He's a really good offensive profile bat prospect, and they got a couple arms. You know, it sounds like, oh, we could have just gave up so and so plus this and this, but that's not how trades work in, in baseball. You can't really just go off the top one hundred list. But I'm sure Elias learned something from the trade deadline and uh, you know, hopefully it's not just that it's a crapshoot and we just won't use it ever. I would say that and this is something Michael Elias probably already knows, but it's really hard to fix a guy with two months left in the season. 
in a high pressure situation. And I think that's what happened with Fuzunami. Uh, I think the Orioles thought that bringing him in, they could get the best version of Fuzunami consistently by tweaking some things. That didn't happen. Flaherty, I don't think that was the case as much. But if you look at both of them, were having statistically up and down years, but had been pitching well before they came over in a trade deadline. And we know the Orioles' approach generally is towards helium guys. We're actually going to talk about that here in a few minutes as it's been relating to their draft strategy. But the trade deadline, you probably need a little bit more to go off of. And um, I think that next year, the lesson's probably going to be that, you know, you go out and you get someone that you maybe doesn't have as high of upside as Fuzanami would have had had he pitched consistently well. But you don't have to do a whole lot with to get the best version of him. And we'll go on now to a big story that broke uh, after the Rangers, just in fact, within the last few days. Um, the Nationals have hired Brad Selick um, as their new director of amateur scouting. The move was first reported by Keith Law over at The Athletic. Selick had been the Orioles' director of draft operations before being hired by the Nationals, and he had been with the Orioles for several years. In fact, he's joining a former Oriole front office member there as he's going to report directly to the new scouting director of the Nationals, Danny Haas, who was with the Orioles from 2012 to 2019 with Selick. We've had Brad Selick on this show before. He was a great guest. Always enjoyed listening to his insights, whether it was here or on other uh, news outlets covering the Orioles. And if you want to get a sense of how the Orioles have really built this organization through the draft, you could go back and listen to that interview where he talks about makeup, how important that is in the selection process. Whatever it is, he was really insightful in that interview. So this is someone that has been a big part of this rebuild. And first of all, happy for him, happy for the Nationals. They've got a good one. But this is something the Orioles probably are going to have to get used to. The more successful you become, the more other teams are going to poach your good front office members. And if this happens, that Selick is going to be the first one in the Michael Elias era. Yeah, I. It hurt. It's like they took ripped the bandaid off. Uh, so I guess that's good in a way. You ripped the bandaid off here with uh, our guys being poached. But I, we knew this was coming. I was kind of anticipating probably seeing some of our. Maybe some of our more higher profile minor league coaches go first, thinking maybe like on the front office side of things, they say right, job's not finished yet. Uh, and we get like one more year, like everybody intact uh, before, you know, they say, all right, we're, we're going to go on to bigger, bigger and better things maybe. But I'm happy for Selig. Uh, he, this is a guy who's literally worked his way from the bottom. Like then he started his career off as like a mascot for some minor league team many, many years ago. Uh, and now like his, he's left a mark on this franchise that's going to be felt for years to come. I mean, look at these drafts last couple of years. They're unbelievable. Uh, and hopefully I'm sure that the bigger thing here with all of this though, is that the, the culture that this organization has put into place, the processes that they put into place in terms of like player development, I don't see them taking a step back really. If anything, you know, obviously they're going to have someone that's, Matt Blood and Michael Elias are well aware of someone they're very familiar with. And I have all the confidence in the world that they, they can kind of, whoever it is, whether it's someone internally or someone externally, that they can pick up that torch and keep running with it. The draft is going to be a different beast for this organization now. Like we're not picking one, two, three anymore at the top of the draft. We're picking in the back end of the first round, but the player development staff, as we talk about weekly here on the show is phenomenal. We ju you just saw Alex Pham win MLB Pipeline's MILB Pitcher of the Year for the Orioles organization. He was, what, the late teens draft pick out of the University of San Francisco, a relief prospect. Uh, so that uh, is a huge positive in which I feel confident in uh, more than anything else. And so I losing Celia Kurtz, but at the same time, I have all the confidence that the Orioles are going to make the right hire here in, uh, in replacing him. First and foremost, I'd like to congratulate Brad Selick for the job. Um, he's a really good dude, obviously good at his job because he was, you know, vital, a big part of the system that has been put in place in this player to acquisition and development that uh, we've seen grow here since Elias and company took over. And he's was here before he was he's one of the rare people who was here before Elias got here and he's still 
got to keep his job and and continue doing it and help build a successful farm system. So yeah, the, the Nationals are getting a great hire here. He's going to be a big part of their resurgence. Um, they have a good thing going over there as well in their rebuild. And, you know, being as he was a part of what put this system in place, I feel like there are people that were working under him that could easily slide in, kind of fill his role. And and he's a big part of that as well. He's teaching the guys under him. As, you know, that's how it goes. It's like kind of like the Ravens next man up when Ozzy was gone. Then you had DaCosta come in. Um, you know, this if you have a healthy chemistry and system in place, then it should be easy to find a capable replacement. And like Wyatt Law said in the comments, then you can go look for some outside candidates to bring in and just add to the mix. And hopefully, you know, this is going to keep happening because we've seen it from other organizations, the Rays, the Astros, the Braves. When you're good and you're doing something well, other teams are going to say, well, we want to do what they're doing. What better way than get someone that's doing it from that team themselves. So it's probably going to happen again. But um, I am surprised it was this high profile guy right away. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> again, it's just... Yeah, I'm happy for Brad. Sad for us for now, but we'll find out his replacement. And we'll learn his name and and what makes him good as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is pretty much good for everybody involved. Yeah, and I think he's going to the Nationals at the right time. Um, I do think that there are brighter days ahead down in D.C., even if that team is still a year or two out from really turning it around. But they just finished 71 and 91. They're going to have a relatively high draft pick coming up this year. And he's going there at a point where they're really going to need that last little bit of push out of their farm system to get over the top, especially because you look at the three teams ahead of them right now, and they all seem to be at least set up decently for the near future in the Braves, Phillies, and Marlins. Um, so it's going to be a tough climb for them, but I don't think they're completely out, of, you know, completely far off from being relevant again. And I know that him going there is going to be really helpful to them. Yeah, the only that's the only thing, you know. I, I, I don't really have any soft spots for the Nationals. I think their stadium doesn't really have uh, any character at all. It's kind of boring. Um, I think, you know, you lose Soto, you let Harper go, all this other blah, blah, blah. I think they messed up with that Soto trade. We don't have to get into all that. But uh, I just wanted to ramble about the Nationals. But uh, I will say that the Orioles Nationals World Series runs are going to be phenomenal because I, I have no doubt that Nationals organization now scares me. Uh, I'm excited to see what they do in the draft because I know it's going to have the Brad Selick touch. Just, just look at these Orioles draft classes. If there's one thing, we can question the offseason moves. We have already. We're going to most weeks on this show for the next couple of months. You can question the offseason moves. You can question, question lineup construction. You can question Hyde's in-game decisions. There are a lot of things about this organization that you can question on a daily basis, and you should. And there are legitimate gripes that all of us fans have. But I think if there's one thing that all of us as Orioles fans can look at and say, I'm not going to question it. I'm going to sit back and enjoy this ride because you guys are doing it right. It was the draft. And, and so if if Seelix going to take that over to the Nationals, Nationals fans are in for a uh, really good run over the next couple of years. It, it's going to be... The good times are going to come back to D.C. And you know what? At the end of the day, if it's going to make for more exciting Orioles National Series, let's do it. Yeah, the rivalry, the rivalry might actually become real at some point if uh, both teams are good at the same time. We need that Beltway World Series one day. That would be fun. So, yeah, uh, I think it's it's good that both of these teams will be good soon. It wouldn't be a segment about the Nationals, if Nick did not mention how much he can't stand Nationals Park. I've only been there once, and I was only the only reason I didn't fall asleep was because they were playing the Phillies, and there was a Phillies fan there who just heckled everyone that could hear him the entire time. Um, but yeah, and then no one even saw the Bryce Harper walk off home run in that game because we were all on the Metro getting back to our cars because it was the last Metro of the night. Uh, so, congrats you to walk off in like an empty stadium, but. Anyway, I digress. Go Nationals. We'll move on now to the Arizona Fall League. And usually by this time of the year, we've been talking about the Arizona Fall League for a few weeks. But because of the Orioles' playoff run, we really have not even had a chance to get into the basics of what is going on for the Orioles out in Arizona 
this fall. The Orioles' prospects are playing on the Mesa, Mesa Solar Sox, and they've got several prospects there, including pitchers Carter Baumler, Trey McGill, Zach Peake, Carlos Tavera, and Peter Van Loon, and then position players catcher Connor Pavoloni, infielders T.T. Bowens and Billy Cook, and then outfielder John Rhodes. This is really a varied group because you do have some guys facing some interesting Rule 5 decisions coming up, in particular with McGill and Peak. Cook is coming off a breakout year. Bowens has been a solid player but missed a lot of time last year because of injury, so this is a chance for him to make up for some lost time. John Rhodes had some positive developments in 2023 that you want to see him build off of. So this is really a varied group. And while it might not have that one big name in it, it's still an interesting mix of prospects. So, Bob, I'll start with you here. Um, We're just the three of us catching up now to what's been going on in Arizona because of the Orioles being in the playoffs. But when you look at the players who are there and – how they performed so far, what stands out to you? Um, <laughs> that nobody is exactly lighting the world on fire, except for Carter Baumler, who looks to be fantastic. And I saw a good shout out or two about him from some guys that have been down there. He's got a 2.57 ERA over seven innings, giving up only two walks while striking out 10. So that's good. Um, you know, some of the Zach Peak, he's doing fine. A lot of the pitching, it's like, Okay, Trey McGill, you have a 6.75 ERA, but you give up six hits over four innings with only one walk. You know, it's hard to really tell what to take from that. I know Peter Van Loon was throwing gas. Doesn't have the best numbers, but again, the stuff looks pretty good offensively. Unfortunately, not really much of anything going on. T.T. Bowen's two home runs, but a 625 OPS. John Rhodes, under 600 OPS. Billy Cook, 570 OPS. So, you know, hopefully there's still plenty of time for them to get going, but, you know, not exactly the greatest uh, showing for the Orioles so far. And honestly, as the league as a whole isn't exactly putting their best foot forward this year in the AFL. Yeah, it does seem kind of quiet. I was mentioning before we jumped on, even from like a national perspective, uh, I think the only tweets I see consistently are like Ricky Tiedemann dominate, Ricky Tiedemann dominating the league. That's about it. Um and I think Kyle Manzardo, and of course my boy Chase Delauder, just destroying some nuclear bombs out there in uh, Arizona. That's good to see. But yeah, it's we didn't send out the Heston Kerstads this year, but you look at the pitchers, and I mean, these are some really intriguing names here, and they all are coming off injuries. Bombers had multiple major injuries, so he's just getting innings. Like you said, he's been pitching very well so far. Good strikeout numbers, not walking anybody, continuing to do in Arizona what we've seen him do when he's been healthy on the mound. Uh, during the regular season, Trey Mago coming off Tommy John surgery, Zach Peak also coming off Tommy John surgery, so they only had a couple of innings. Van Loon, I don't know what injury or injuries he had this year, but I know he didn't really pitch that much uh, this season. And like you mentioned, the numbers aren't great for him, but he's the guy that you're seeing some write ups about, and that's getting some real heat out there for his stuff. That's what you want to pay attention to. Forget the numbers, these guys can hit bombs like it's nothing out there. Look at what Heston Kerstad did last year, uh, leading the league in home runs, and we're like, all right, but it's Arizona. Uh, it turns out that power was legitimate, but you look at some of these guys, it's very easy to drive one out here, and the pitching typically isn't great in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, obviously, teams really don't want to send their top pitching prospects out there to Arizona for numerous reasons, but you know, take the stats with a huge grain of salt. And unfortunately, Mesa's home ballpark, I noticed, does not have StatCast data. Some of the ballparks out in Arizona do, but of course, I feel like every year since we started this podcast, the Orioles, I don't know if it's random or how they assign these teams, but it feels like the Orioles also, and I don't think it's by coincidence, they always get put on the teams that don't have StatCast data at their home ballpark. So we get limited information there as well. But yeah, the pitchers, it's all guys coming off major injuries. Uh, even Carlos Tavera had a couple of injuries this year, missed some time. So it's just putting in, getting the innings, uh, getting feel for certain pitches, working on things. And you mentioned the hitters as well, Bowens, injuries, Connor Pavoloni, injury. But the two guys who didn't have injuries that were super intriguing were John Rhodes and Billy Cook. And I kind of, I think I mentioned this right when the rosters were announced a month or so ago. I kind of think they're almost sent out to Arizona. You know, maybe Billy Cook was, all right, get some extra at bats because hopefully you have a bigger role in Norfolk next year. And uh, 
maybe a shot at if there's an emergency. We see Billy Click in the majors next year. Rhodes is obviously a guy we know the Orioles have been high on for a while. Great batted ball data throughout his career, just hasn't quite put put it all together for a consistent stretch. I almost wondered if those two guys are being sent out to Arizona. It's kind of like a showcase opportunity. I don't know. But regardless, don't fixate on the numbers too much and uh, just pay attention to what you're hearing from people who were there watching them live and uh, some of the, you know, baseball America, MLB pipeline, some of the stuff that they're putting out there. If they're hyping up a guy, they're looking at the data. Uh, They're doing the dirty work, giving us the good information. That's who you pay attention to. Yeah. I wouldn't, also, in regards to Rhodes and Cook, I wouldn't uh, take too much into their, you know, 2024 season with how they do right now. Because look how bad Cesar Prieto did in the AFL last year. You know, after a long season, just got those reps in, did not do well at all in the AFL, but came in and was great all 2023 season for the Orioles before he was traded. I kind of stopped keeping track of him after that, unfortunately. But I know. You know, didn't really affect him one way or the other that he performed poorly in the Arizona Fall League last year. Yeah, you're both right. You don't want to take away too much from the numbers because it's a small sample size. Arizona does have a reputation for being hitter friendly. I think for me, it, it goes back to those national write-ups. because You think about it last year, there was a lot of buzz nationally around Heston Kerstad and the way that he was performing in the Arizona Fall League. And it was things that weren't necessarily reflected in the stat line that a lot of people, such as Jim Callis and MLB Pipeline, among others, were talking about. You go back to 2021 when Logan Gillespie was out there. Eric Longenhagen had a lot of good things to say about Gillespie, and it caught a lot of people, ourselves included, by surprise when the Orioles put him on the 40-man roster, yet his stuff had looked good in Arizona despite not having very good results. So, there's a lot of intrigue there. I think for me, what I'm the most curious about is the pitching. Baltimore stands out because although you wouldn't really look at him necessarily as young anymore because he's 21, he's going to be 22 in January. He went out to Arizona with just 21 and two-thirds professional innings. This is a guy that's really been hampered by injuries, but we know someone the Orioles are really high on. And you get the sense that if he could just put together one healthy season, he could be the top pitching prospect or certainly one of the top pitching prospects in the system. And then Peak and Miguel, I want to see if either one of them build a case for a 40-man spot. I think Peak would have gotten one last year had it not been for the injury. He's now coming back from Tommy John. How does he look out there? And then with Miguel, this was someone who before he had Tommy John surgery – a lot of people thought that he could be a possible starting rotation candidate for the Pirates in the 22 season. They left him unprotected last year, and the Orioles were able to pick him up in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft. But I just wonder, there's a lot of pitchers that are Rule 5 eligible this year that feel kind of close in valuation right now. And could one of those two guys bolster their case here over the next few weeks? And that's, that's something we have a lot of time to get into. But that's something that I'm interested in following. Yeah, I'm just glad. Honestly, among these pitchers, I'm glad they sent Peak out. I hope Peak gets some meaningful innings. I think I still honestly believe before Peak went down with that injury, Tommy John surgery, I, I know I've said it before on the show, the stat line maybe wasn't lighting the world on fire. I know that he wasn't really striking out a bunch of guys. And he was getting behind early on guys down there pitching for Bowie. But you need a ground ball double play. He was piling them up like they were nothing. Uh, and really putting together outings of like three, four straight innings of just shutout baseball. And I have all the confidence that we th- we talked about a lot this year about guys in double A, the strikeout rate maybe not being there. But when they get promoted to triple A, the strikeouts were, were showing up. Zach Peak is one of those guys who I could see following that same mold this year. Uh, so he was a guy who was climbing up pretty high, our top 30 list as well. So all these Baumler is a guy who, like Zach said, could be one of the top pitching prospects in this organization if he's healthy. Peak was a top 30 arm uh, before his injury. So you got some some kind of, uh, I don't want to say sleeper studs down there, but you got some guys who can definitely add some really good and much-needed pitching depth uh, down on the farm once they're healthy. Yeah, I feel like the pitching depth, I was just going over some – 
roster stuff for next year and the pitching logjam in the minor leagues it might be worse than the hitter logjam because there is a lot of talented guys that are where's the room for them especially in the double a triple a level i mean can't forget guys like brandon young kyle bronovich zach peak like trey mcgall these guys coming back from injury and trying to pick up where they left off seth johnson's healthy surprised he wasn't sent out to the afl but yeah, uh, along with the guys like Povich, McDermott, Armbruster, who made it to AAA, and Alex Pham. He probably could start at AAA next year, but he's almost forced to going to be starting back at AA to begin the year. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting, and the 40-man decisions will be harder and harder every year as the Orioles continue to get guys up at the Major League level from the farm system. And it's tough. We're probably going to have to trade or lose some guys to the Rule 5, kind of like Tampa Bay Rays we've seen over the last decade or so, how they have to handle the situation every year. We're going to wrap up with something we've actually been sitting on here for a couple of weeks. Before our live show at Checker Spot Brewing, we asked members of our Patreon group, uh, many of them in the WhatsApp chat, which you have access to at any paid level of Patreon subscription to select their winners for year-end awards. We didn't get a chance that night to read it on air because we had so many guests on the show, and then it kind of got lost in the shuffle during the Orioles playoff run, but we knew we were going to bring it out at the right time, and we feel like now is the right time to announce which players in the major leagues and minor leagues won our awards as given out by our patrons this year. And with that, I'll turn it over to Bob because this was sort of his creation. Yeah, I probably should have done multiple choice because looking at the answers, it's I have to do some math and that's never a good thing. But uh, Major League MVO looks like Gunnar Henderson is the runaway here with about 13 votes. You got Ryan O'Hearn got one. Anthony Santander got a couple. Cobb Radish got one and Adley got four. So they were right in line with us there. The Cy Young at the Major League level, pretty unanimous. Um, it was Cobb Radish with... Every vote except for one, uh, Garrett Cole got one. Um, maybe a misunderstanding as far as the poll goes there. But um, Platinum Glove at the Major League level, we have a surprise winner with Gunnar Henderson coming out ahead of Cedric Mullins by five votes. Also, Adley and Jordan Westberg got a vote each as well. Coach of the Year, Brandon Hyde wins. Obviously, that was one we didn't even do for us personally just because it's tough, but Chris Holt also got uh, some votes. Uh, hitting coaches got some votes, and a funny response was Orioles Twitter got a vote for Major League Coach of the Year. Major League Breakout, this was a really close vote between three guys. You had Ryan O'Hearn winning with seven votes, Yanir Cano coming in second with six votes, and Gunnar Henderson coming in behind him with uh four votes and again my math ain't math and ryan O'Hearn actually won with a vote total of nine not six or seven whatever i said previously jordan westberg got a vote kyle bradish got a vote and that is it moving over to the minor league phase jackson holiday gets the fan vote ahead of our pick kobe mayo mayo did get four votes but holiday got 17 votes to be the runaway winner there according to our patrons the minor league cy young Chase McDermott, he also got the win here for the patrons to go along with us. He got, let's see, a lot of votes. Uh, all of them except for three votes. The other three went to Alex Pham, and I guess MLB Pipeline would be another one if we were counting that. Minor League Platinum Glove, Joey Ortiz in a runaway. Uh, Colton Kowser got a vote. Dante Williams got some votes. Judd Fabian got some votes. And Question Mark, Question Mark got a vote. Um, minor league coach of the year, Buck Britton runs away with 18 votes. Justin Ramsey got two and Mercado got one, Roberto Mercado. And the minor league breakout player of the year looks like Samuel Basayo with seven votes. Alex Pham with seven votes as well. So they, they tied again, math. Um, Kobe Mayo got three votes. Billy Cook got three votes. Trace Bright got a vote as well. So there you go. Question mark, question mark was robbed in the platinum glove voting, by the way. Yeah, definitely saw some great plays out of him. They made me question, like, is this even real? Is this possible? So for sure. And Orioles Twitter definitely knows what they're talking about. 
as well. They should really do that. I think they should do that for a game. <laughs> Lean into the bit and just say, you know what, Orioles Twitter, you're making the lineup today. It could be a spring training game. We'll start off slow. Orioles Twitter, you make the lineup today. I want to see what happens. And then I want to see Brandon Hyde come on there and say, man, Orioles Twitter <laughs> putting out the punt lineup today, huh? <laughs> yes. What is There's like that fans first football league or something where like fans vote or like tweet the plays or whatever and they run them. Let's do a first spring training game. I, I would love it. And then, yeah, have Brandon Hyde just everybody just dunk on that lineup in the postgame press conference. <laughs> I sure. picture it now. It's going to be like an early split squad game in Lakeland or somewhere like that. Orioles lose fourteen to one, and Brandon Hyde just rips into Orioles Twitter at the press conference. It would be great. <laughs> yeah, I might win man of the year, manager of the year, but I'm still pissed. Not at the playoffs, <laughs> at this freaking punt lineup you put out here. <clears throat> um, we do have. I sorry to spring this up on you guys. Uh, we did have a question uh, come in. Wanted to address real quick, kind of teaser in, into next year though talking about pitching um kind of random here but shout out shout out k-swiss uh who messaged us with this question he wanted to talk about uh the pitching side of things and and looking at guys like tyler wells grayson rodriguez and even dl hall do we think that they are going to be fully off innings limits next year or is there just always going to be this concern with guys like wells that they might run out of gas down the stretch hmm it's a good question i mean i feel like a guy like bradish I feel like the reins are off starting next year with Bradish. Um, it's unfortunate. Maybe, you know, he got that postseason start, which helps, but, you know, missing a couple early games didn't exactly allow him to go well over 200 innings next year, but for all intents and purposes, I feel like even those few extra innings in the playoffs helps a guy like Grayson. I don't know if he's like completely reins off next year, but it's Tyler Wells, I feel like. Hopefully he can get over the hump if he's going to be a starting pitcher still that he can maintain, you know, into the second half of the season. Otherwise, I think it might be better to just make him a permanent reliever because he looks really good out there, even though he looked really good as a starting pitcher as well. Deal Hall, he's a guy that might be on a starting starting limit, innings limit, especially if he does make it as a starter next year compared to a reliever might have to be the Tyler Wells version next year where he's a starter in the first half and then transitions to a bullpen role later on. But yeah, the good thing is even a guy like Chase McDermott, he got a bunch of innings this year. So if he earns a role on the team at some point in the year, he shouldn't be too limited. I feel like we're all kind of still recovering from the COVID year, but I think we're, we're pretty good on the innings front for next year. Yeah, I I have to think that with Braddis and Kramer, the range are off. They're close to being off with Rodriguez if they're not off entirely. And then with Wells and Hall, it's just going to come back to what role they have. Wells, I think you kind of want to take things slow in the sense that you don't want to set an innings limit up front right away because what if this is the year that he's able to get through the season? Uh, but then you also have to have that exit plan that if he does get a bump in the road in the second half again, that you're able to do what you did this year and salvage the last little bit of the season and put him in a bullpen role. And he did a great job for the Orioles in some high leverage situations over the last couple of weeks of the season. As for Hall, if he's a starter, there's definitely going to be some sort of innings limit. Uh, there's no question about it because he really didn't get much of a chance to start this past year. We know his history with injuries. You're going to have to take it slow with DL Hall if he does start next year. That doesn't mean that I think you have to put him back in Norfolk to start the season, but you're going to have to take it kind of slow at that rate. So that's a guy that if he is in the rotation, he's definitely going to be under some sort of innings limit. Yeah, I think you guys nailed that one. I I was going to highlight just as far as innings go, I think they're going to be allowing their guys to work a little bit deeper next year just because you look at from the minor league side of things, Bob mentioned Chase McDermott. I mean, he went from like 103 innings to 119 innings. Uh, and that was even cut short because of the injury. He would have had, what, another four or five starts maybe. Uh, Cade Povich got a good jump at innings as well. Uh, and Justin Armbruster, another guy who could see some major league time next year. I mean, he was pushing six, seven inning starts in September uh, for Norfolk. His innings, yeah, he went uh, four additional innings uh, this year. So they definitely, I think, did a good job of bu- building up on the minor league side of things, uh, pushing guys in their innings limits. I think especially the guys who are, could contribute at the major leagues next year, 
which could help this team down the stretch. Um, but yeah, I think Deal Hall would be the only guy that I would have concern there because I don't even know how many innings he had last year. It wasn't much. Um, Wells is going to be interesting because this is what two straight years. I, I don't know. We, we need to have like a whole bullpen episode. I feel like after our conversation earlier about what do they do with Wells and DL Hall, what targets are out there. Um, that could actually be a, I think a, a fun show, just a bullpen exclusive episode. Yeah. It looks does like, sorry, DL Hall looks like he had around 72 innings combined between minors and majors this year, not including the playoffs. So, you know, say 75 innings. It's definitely, he would definitely be tightly monitored uh, next year if he is going to start, but that's something we'll have to see. And of course, we will be here every week in the offseason to bring you the latest Orioles coverage, both major league and minor league. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and X. We will be back next week, but for now, it is time to let Nick go watch the Dallas Cowboys. Thank you to everyone who was watching us tonight with Monday Night Football coming up and the NLCS on. We appreciate that. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On the Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.